This is an ABC podcast. Hello. There's always a time and a place for Cadbury's dairy milk chocolate. Including right here on RN, I'm Meredith Lake with Soul Search, the show about religion, spirituality, and today, a look back at the difference it makes to the chocolate trade. Well, Easter is around the corner, and I wonder if you've braved the chocolate aisle at the supermarket yet. Did you know, many of the treats you see there were first made by religious companies. From Pascal's Lollies to Roundtree and Cadbury, the British confectionery industry was largely the creation of Quakers. And as we'll see, their faith really mattered to how they went about making sweets. But before the Christian festival of Easter, the Jewish community celebrates Pesach, or Passover, commemorating the exodus out of slavery in ancient Egypt. And food is at the centre of this dynamic tradition. The way that the meal starts, actually, is with a question. And it's a question that the youngest child asks. And the question is, well, what are we, why are we doing all of this? Why is what we're doing different from what we do on, on all other nights? And then comes the answer, and the answer is then told as the story of coming out of Egypt. Judith Levitan, explaining the Jewish Seder meal, central to Pesach, and the power of stories to create identity. This week's spiritual life hack, later in the program. First then, to the Quakers who shaped the British chocolate industry, founding brands like Cadbury, Terry's and Roundtree, creating a new kind of factory, and arguably along the way, civilising capitalism. To find out more, I spoke to Emma Robertson from La Trobe University. Emma, you're a historian of the chocolate trade, and that to me sounds like a tasty research field. Can you tell me, how did you get into that? Well, this really started from um, my background in the city of York in the UK, which is a city that has really been dominated by chocolate. We've got both uh, Terry's factory and the Roundtree's factory. So Kit Kat and chocolate oranges were very much part of my childhood. And I used to um, have the sweet smell of chocolate and sometimes the less sweet smell of sort of burning sugar as I was driving, you know, while being driven in and out of town. So I really kind of had that background. And when I was looking at postgraduate study in a master's in women's studies, I started to think, you know, what what is interesting to me? And so many of my family had worked at Roundtree's and Terry's and a lot of the women in my family that that's really started to think about what are the working stories behind these chocolate factories. Kind of, I knew a little bit about Joseph Roundtree and Sebram Roundtree and sort of these names that had sort of been familiar with me from the school where I'd went, you know, I went to Joseph Roundtree School and there was the Roundtree Park and Roundtree Swimming Bath. So these kind of names of these Quaker philanthropists were sort of in the background, but I wanted to know a bit more about the, the working lives that have produced these great uh, chocolate products. And, and so I looked at women uh, working in those factories. So it was a very uh, delicious topic. I got to look at <laughs> a lot of chocolate advertising and that made me very hungry a lot in the archives. Um, and yeah, that's how I really started. You mentioned Quaker philanthropists right there. Mm. The chocolate industry in Britain was for a long time dominated by Quaker families and businesses. Can you give me a sense of who the Quakers were as a religious community? Yeah, I mean, um, in terms of the Quakers, they're one of the important uh, non-conformist groups, uh, religious groups, and they really are sort of finding a different path, I suppose, and very much about, I think, sort of personal and individual spirituality, communication with God, not through the more formal things like churches. You know, they have their friends, the Society of Friends, as they were called, have their friends meeting house where they gather to worship and it's very much about a silent worship where it's only when they're kind of motivated to to speak um so it's a, it's a very different kind of approach to religion and like other non-conformist groups within Britain, they're very much sort of excluded from certain types of, of work and sort of study and things in, in the UK until the 19th century. So I think they're not allowed to stand as politicians until about 1832 uh, because they won't swear allegiance to the king. And so they, they're very much, I think, motivated by ideas of human rights and pacifism is very, very important, equality of, of people and of, and of men and women. This is really what I think, for me at least, my understanding characterises the, the Quaker faith. You mentioned there that they're non-conformist and therefore Mm. excluded from 
public service, but also from the universities and thus from the professions yeah. until the Act of Toleration comes in in the 1830s. Yeah. And so business yeah. becomes this field of Quaker endeavour. Can you give us yeah. a bit of a sense of just how prominent Quakers were in the chocolate trade specifically? Well, in terms of the British chocolate trade, I mean, they're just really, they're just so central because fries from the 18th century, they become the kind of dominant leading firm initially and released their sort of first chocolate bar quite early on in the 19th century. And then Cadbury's really become dominant. And, you know, these are educated people. They they take innovations. Um, Cadbury gets the Van Houten Press, um, which is what enables them to make a really pure uh, type of cocoa with all the kind of fat extracted from it. Um, and they really do then take a lead really from sort of mid-late 19th century. Roundtree's, again, another question family become dominant sort of early 20th century they really start in sweets more so fruit pastels and rancheries gums which are still kind of known today they're a bit later to chocolate Kit Kat and Smarties those really famous brands start to dominate from the interwar period so there's you know three names three Quaker names and then Terry's as well the Terry's chocolate orange that I see in the shops uh, still today in Australia another Quaker family so they're really very dominant in in the chocolate industry in, in Britain. Mm. Even Bourneville Cocoa, which we can buy so easily here, still today is yeah. named after Bourneville, the site of the, the Quaker Cadbury factory, which we'll, which we'll come to yeah. just in a moment. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned the purification mm. of the cocoa using that Dutch technology. That yeah. interest in health, it's part of the appeal of the chocolate trade to the Quakers, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, they're very opposed to getting involved in any industries, you know, they wouldn't be involved in, say, the weapons manufacturing industry. But chocolate has these associations in the 19th century and still, you know, of being a healthy product and particularly as being an alternative to alcohol. They um, don't have pubs in the in the villages that they create. And although they're not necessarily all strictly abstained from alcohol, but they see it as one of the evils of society. And I think Roundtree's quite early on when they're running a grocers in York actually have sort of coffee. I saw a picture of a coffee van that they were having to try and tempt people away from alcohol. So, so chocolate has those associations um, making cocoa with, you know, boiled water um, is seen as something that's healthy and strength giving and, and that's how it's often advertised as well certainly in the 19th century and into the 20th century as a health giving drink and as a temperance drink yeah and as a temperance drink so very much seen as something that's a social good and that's quite that is important to them i think mm, they're, they're well known the quakers are well known for mm. their interest in social goods and social issues from a-list issues like prison reform and the mm -hmm. abolition of slavery but how did how did their business interests relate to or reflect that kind of concern for social welfare or even social justice? Yeah, and it's sort of a, it's an interesting area because there's sort of critique of whether this really, um, you know, to what extent is their business and their sort of capitalist enterprises informed by their Quakerism? Uh, there is debate around that. I mean, I think it is. I think they don't see um, profit and doing good as necessarily uh, incompatible. So they see providing a good working environment where people are able to do, you know, get a good living wage from their work as being very important. And as a social good in itself, they see work itself as important. So this sort of infuses how they build their factories and they're very advanced in terms of industrial welfare. So they do lead the way in things like pension schemes for their workers. They have sort of works councils where workers are supposed to have a voice in the running of, of the factory to a degree. They have early sort of profit sharing libraries and education schemes for their workers where they're able to continue their education during working hours, medical facilities, dentists. So this, they really lead the way in that. And I think that is very much coming from their interest in, in doing good in, in their communities and in their factories. But it is a tension for them, I think, you know, making a profit, what to do with that profit. And perhaps as we'll come back to their role in a, in a global industry that is dependent on materials, cocoa beans, for example, coming from the British Empire. And that question of is it possible to civilise or spiritualise or even Christianise capitalism or is that a futile mm. task? I mean, sociologists have been arguing about that for a long time. Yeah, I wonder, yeah. are we talking then about an example of what might be termed Quaker capitalism? This is a time when Roundtree, Seabomb Roundtree is discovering or helping to rediscover poverty. Do you mm. think it's a successful enterprise in that sense in the 19th century? I mean, their businesses are obviously very successful. And so I think their approach to business works for them. And I think that's the sort of more cynical view is that, well, Quakerism, their um, 
reputation helps them to sell chocolate. So it kind of works for their brand um, to do that. I mean, Roundtree's, really the influence of Quakers directly is, is after the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, it isn't really there in terms of its management. And yet I think they still benefit from that reputation of, of doing good. Cadbury's, it much, stays much longer because it stays a family firm for much longer. But yeah, I think there's a cynical perspective that their reputation serves them well in business circles. I'm probably less cynical than that. Well, I am less cynical than that. I think their approach does work well and that they're trying to do do the right thing by their workers and to cultivate a genuine kind of partnership ideal between them. And then their work outside the factory, um, Seabrum Rountree's uh, poverty study, you know, these are really seminal studies in terms of trying to understand what underpins poverty. And Joseph Rountree is very keen on this. It's, it's all very well to have a soup kitchen to deal with the, you know, the results of it, but what are the underlying causes? And, and his charitable foundations that he sets up in the early 20th century, you know, still doing work around social justice, human rights, trying to change policy, as well as more practical things like social housing. So, yeah, I, I do think it's, a, it's an interesting model that could still, you know, inform how we see business and, and capitalism today. You used the word just a moment ago, uh, cultivation, which is quite a literal thing for these Quaker businesses that you're talking about. The Cadbury brothers established literally a factory in a garden with the creation of Bourneville Village in the 1870s. Can you tell me about that idea of the factory in a garden? Yeah, this really is something very different at the time, I think, in that Cadbury's moved their factory out from this very urban environment of the city of Birmingham and move it out to the outskirts and really set up uh, a different type of factory with a lot of green space. They build worker housing under this name of Bourneville near the factory uh, and really take their workers out of that um, urban environment. There's there's trains that bring workers from those that still live in the urban centre, trains that bring them out to the factory. This becomes so central to their identity, I think, as, as the factory in a garden. <clears throat> and they will export that model, particularly to Hobart in Tasmania, as people here will know, they, they try and recreate that model um, of Claremont. a much sort of healthier... Yeah, Claremont in um, in Tasmania. So they really want to re to export that model of a healthier working environment. And Rountree's do something very similar. They move their factory away from the river, the urban environment of inner city York, and they take it out to the outskirts and they build again a factory with open green spaces, um, places where workers can go out in the lunch break and sit in the gardens. And then they also build a village, not just for workers, um, a village called New Earswick, and, and build on that sort of um, the garden city model of, of having a different kind of way of, of living with people who have, you know, bathrooms inside, a nice small garden, really try and design houses in, in the best way known at the time. Hmm. You mentioned the Cadbury factory in Hobart there, and I'm sure many of our listeners will have been there. Can you tell me more about it and how it came to be? So the Cadbury factory in Hobart is something that I'm really interested in and feel like I haven't had enough time to, to do some work on this because... When I first moved to Australia in 2011, this was something I really wanted to look at. And I was able to go and visit the factory and use the archive material there because I was really interested in, in how workers from Britain had actually come out to help set this factory up. So Cadbury's, Fry and Pascal had sort of got together um, and decided to establish a factory in Australia, partly to get behind tariff walls after the First World War. And they, they searched out a site. They found this site in Claremont that really appealed to them, sort of open environment. And it's a beautiful spot. I'm sure many people, many listeners will have been there. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. And they, they, they decide they can market this as the factory by the mountain and the sea. It's also conveniently not Melbourne, where they see workers as potentially a bit more problematic, maybe a bit more radical, a bit more unionised. But I think the space appeals to them that they can try and recreate their model factory. They do try and set up a workers' village. And I found it fascinating that they kind of struggle with that. It's not as easy as they think it's going to be to recreate Bourneville in Tasmania. One of the things they find is that Australians... They sort of want a bit more control over what their houses are like. They don't like too many rules about whether they can have fences, whether they can have chickens in their backyard. There's more of a, a culture of ownership as well. They don't necessarily want to rent from their firm. So it's just a fascinating um, place that I'd love to do more on. And most of the things I've done have been around the early migrants so that they bring, I think it's about 40 workers that I've traced so far that actually come to Hobart to set, set up this factory to train local workers and they, the first ones that live in the new village. And I just found that fascinating, that early story of really a very isolated spot in the 1920s until that factory gets going. 
and and it's fascinating that it bumps up against even then mm. the idea of the great Australian dream of your own house, your own mm. being lord of yeah. your own manor in the Australian countryside. Definitely, and and against union politics in Australia as well. That you know the the Cadbury model is that workers will have all workers will have the benefit of the Cadbury welfare schemes, um, the pensions, the the holidays, these kind of things. But the Australian union union model you know, has its own kind of way of doing things. So they have to try and negotiate that as well, sort of how to, how to fit their kind of welfare capitalist, Quaker capitalist model into a new environment. On RN, this is Soul Search, and I'm Meredith Lake, speaking with historian Emma Robertson, who grew up in the chocolate town of York and then went on to study the British chocolate trade. Well, the Cadbury factory in Hobart was the first outside the UK, and it embodied the particular values that Quaker firms brought to chocolate manufacturing, the idea of the factory in a garden, and a view of workers as members of a community, not just sellers of labour. But let's flip the coin now and think about the supply side of the British chocolate industry, like tea, sugar and coffee. Cocoa was an imperial commodity, and for Quaker firms like Roundtree and Cadbury, this posed ethical challenges of its own. Can you tell me more about the ways in which these Quaker chocolate companies were bound up with colonialism? Yeah, this is what really became more interesting to me as I sort of developed this project from a master's into a PhD is, is how, and for me, the city of York, which was sort of often seen as a very provincial city, divorced from empire, was actually very much tied up with an imperial industry and, and the Quaker manufacturers of chocolate were, you know, they were reliant on the products of the British colonies. Um, and in the period that I was looking at, particularly Nigeria and Ghana, but also, you know, early in the 20th century, they were buying cocoa from the Portuguese colonies of, of Sao Tome and Principe, just off the coast of West Africa. And this got them embroiled in a, a scandal over whether they were actually buying slave-grown cocoa. So, you know, very much against all of their beliefs and, and what they were, you know, really talking about. They were very involved in the anti-slavery movement. They become kind of tarnished by this association and they have to sort of try and recoup their reputation and go and investigate what's actually going on and try and sort of see what, what are the actual conditions. And they eventually boycott that, that cocoa in 1908, but not until they kind of receive a lot of bad publicity around that. So it does, you know, it does implicate them in those imperial relationships and they are dependent on, on those uh, relationships to buy their raw materials for their, for their chocolate products. So it's a, it's a tricky relationship for them to um, negotiate. And they, you know, they do try and when they're buying cocoa in West Africa, they set up their own buying agency, which is pretty much, I think, Roundtree's and Cabri going together and send out buying agents to try and get away from some of the worst problems around the middlemen who are doing some of the buying of cocoa and try and buy it for themselves. But they do then put, you know, they want to buy the best cocoa. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're also trying to make a, a business that they see is, is working. So, yeah, it's a really difficult relationship for them to, to negotiate, I think. In what you're describing, the way they responded to the crisis about discovering slave-produced cocoa in their own supply chains, are there antecedents in that response of the fair trade chocolate movement that we see today? That's certainly a, a connection that I think people have been making, that they were trying to establish a sort of fairer model of trade. So I think, yeah, you can sort of look back and, and Cadbury's have again more recently been embroiled in sort of, uh, I think it was early 2000s around the child slavery scandal in cocoa production and, and trying to again sort of say that we're trying to deal fairly. And, and so I think you, you can see perhaps an early version of that, but it's I think it's fair trade itself can be problematic in terms of what does it actually mean? Is it something that makes us feel better without really changing the supply chain all that much in that the profits are still very much in the manufacturing side and the cocoa farmers still not really getting the most profit out of their, their side of things? I wonder too how you might sum up the role of women in these businesses. What were their roles in the Quaker chocolate trade? And the Quakers are interesting because they do have that sense of equality between men and women. And you do see in Cadbury's women directors on the board, I think it's Deborah Cadbury. Is it Deborah Cadbury in the early 1920s, one of the female directors? So there are women in, who very much involved in that side from the family side. But I think in terms of the workers, they really do become important from sort of mid to late 19th century. And women are very, very important in the workforce, often sort of half or just over half of the workforce because they're seen as particularly sort of naturally able to do tasks like decorate the chocolate uh, for chocolate boxes. They might be piping 
delicate designs onto the chocolate, packing chocolates into boxes, wrapping chocolates, doing some of the more sort of intricate packaging. And, and so women are very much um, important in these new factories. So they're crucial to the workforce, really. Um, and that was one of the things that interested me is just how important women workers were. And, you know, not all women can form. I had some great oral histories with women who talked about having hands that were too hot to handle the chocolate. So they were sort of taken off and put on other jobs like sorting nuts and things. Can you tell me about what your grandmother did? What was her job in the chocolate trade? Yeah, one of my grand's job was to actually pipe the designs onto chocolate. So she really talked intricately about the Black Magic chocolate box, which some people might remember. And she used to pipe, I think it was the swirls onto the chocolate orange, I think it was. And she really... Um, talked about how she enjoyed doing that and she said it was quite artistic that was the word that she used it was quite artistic doing that but she was having to do it on an awful lot of chocolates as they were moving past it quite quickly on a sort of conveyor belt so it became more and more mechanized and eventually that was taken over by by machines so she really spoke fondly of the days when women were doing that by hand manually and they also had an, an auntie that worked doing some of the fancy packaging. So she talked about doing the, the ribbons and some of the more sort of elaborate uh, chocolate boxes. And she said, you know, some of those would go to royalty. So there was real pride in what they were doing and a real sense of, you know, this was a product that was coming from York that they were very, very proud of. And that was, you know, a beautiful product in their eyes as well. Well, you mentioned mechanisation as well as the mm. persistent questions around the ethics of the cocoa supply chain. And I wonder what's happened to the chocolate trade in recent decades. Is there still a Quaker influence today? Oh, it'd be certainly in the York chocolate industry that that's really gone. I mean, that had probably gone by the mid. 20th century. But the, the multinationals, the big crisis in York was when Nestle took over, although Nestle have actually you know, invested a lot in York and, and maintained a really important presence in York. But at the time of the takeover, there was a real sense of loss and that, that Quaker tradition, even though Quakers themselves weren't really involved, that that had been lost. And chocolate factories you know, have moved operations, especially to Europe. Terry's chocolate factory closed down and that was moved to, I think it was Poland, to produce chocolate oranges. So the whole nature of the global economy has changed uh, the chocolate industry. I think for a long time, Cadbury's were the ones that had kept that sense, whether or not you would argue it was it was true or not, but a sense of their Quaker heritage and really kept that as part of their brand quite late. But again, you know, takeovers, um, craft and more recent years, again, have sort of weakened that. So I'm not Sure, but I think it, there is still a sense of the, the brand is influenced by that and the Cadbury brand is still a strong brand. But I think, yeah, direct influence would be, would be very limited. Emma Robertson, Senior Lecturer in History at La Trobe University and the author of Chocolate, Women and Empire, A Social and Cultural History. I'm Meredith Lake with Soul Search, the real-life religion and spirituality show here on RN. Why not subscribe to the podcast with the ABC Listen app? Coming up, spiritual life hack, exploring the meaning of the Jewish Passover and the power of foundation stories. Well, it's three and a half centuries since a serious young Englishman, George Fox, had his inward experience of Christ speaking directly to him, galvanising a spirituality that stood apart from the churches and from formal religion. And at some time since the group he founded, the Quakers, played a defining role in the British chocolate industry. As we heard, originally Quaker enterprises like Roundtree and Cadbury have since been subsumed into multinational companies. But the Quaker commitment to social justice remains vibrant in the present. Here's a direct descendant of the chocolatiers, the British MP Ruth Cadbury. We're a fairly small family and it was my forebearers who founded Cadbury chocolate firm. So I'm descended from them and uh, I hope I hold some of their values as well because they weren't just successful businessmen, but they uh, did a lot for social welfare and, and social justice as well. You mentioned values. Your family has had a very distinctive religious history, including many Quakers over several generations. Could you tell me what's distinctive about the Society of Friends? Well, yes, um, Cadbury's are one of a, a number of uh, famous Quaker families, uh, such as Round Trees as, uh, as well. So, I mean, Quakers was one of the non-conformist Christian faiths uh, that came out of the uh, end of the 17th century in, in England. And social justice and peace 
form a major part of our faith and uh, we try and live by those values uh, in our day-to-day lives and for me I'm a, a Labour member of parliament and been a Labour politician most of my adult life. That's really fascinating because for many generations Quakers as non-conformists were barred from the kind of political career that you now have and the political service I guess you now uh, contribute. How do you reflect on that as someone in the political sphere from a non-conformist background? Well, there have been relatively few Quaker members of Parliament. I think there's been more Quakers who've been local councillors. I think uh, there have been Quaker MPs for a, a couple of centuries, but you're right that Quakers were kept out of the professions and the universities and so on, and that is why that many of them went into business and were quite successful uh, business people, and often because they were trusted, because their word was their bond, so the business community generally knew that Quakers could be relied on uh, as honest business people. So I think those are the two reasons a lot of Quakers went into business and were successful. And as I say, I think uh, service to the community and to society has always been a major part of Quakerism. So you think of Elizabeth Fry and the work she did in in, uh, the prison system uh, and so on. Mm, That social justice emphasis is really prominent in Quakerism, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Can you explain how your spirituality informs that interest in social change? Well, one of the founding principles of Quakerism and one of, one of the two key tenets of Quakerism is the social justice uh, faith that we do seek to do good in, in the community and the world around us. So it, it does form a, a major part and the other being the peace testimony. In fact, those two tenets are, are stronger than the nature of our faith. So in terms of people's attitude towards Jesus and God, they can vary quite a lot. We, we don't have a particular uh, you know, set of biblical beliefs that we must follow, but we all do take on seriously our, our commitment to, to social justice and peace. And, and we do interpret that in, in different ways. But I think that, you know, that is what does unite us as Quakers. Uh, and it may be that we work with other Quakers uh, in Quaker organisations or like myself and uh, many people who are involved in other parts of public life. We sort of follow our Quakerism through what we do in our day-to-day lives. And for you, in terms of the issue of housing in particular as being something that's been prominent in your political life? Absolutely. I mean, one reason I think I'm a Labour Party member and and politician is that I see a lot of links between my Quaker faith and core Labour values. And housing is particularly important to me because, I mean, I was a local councillor for 25 years in West London where housing and the shortage of housing was a major issue. But of course, uh, Cadbury's didn't just create a chocolate factory. My my great great and great great grandparents created Bourneville because they recognised that working class people in, in Birmingham were in housed in the most atrocious conditions. So they decided that for their workers and for the wider community in South Birmingham, they would build a village of good quality housing for working people. And that I say is sort of part of my family heritage and I think that's another reason why I'm fighting for decent quality housing, affordable housing. So in some ways you're continuing that concern for the welfare of the urban poor that characterised the Cadbury factories of the mid-19th century. Yes, I I think taking on the importance of decent quality housing for working class people in urban areas, that's what my great-great-grandparents did and what I do now. Mm. Well, thank you, Ruth, and thank you very much for sharing your story on Soul Search today. Thank you very much, Meredith. Thank you. Good talking to you. Ruth Cadbury, whose direct forebears founded the well-known chocolate company. She's now a Labor MP for a West London electorate, the Shadow Minister for Housing and one of three Quakers in the British Parliament at the moment. This is Soul Search on RN with me, Meredith Lake. Exploring religion and spirituality and the difference it makes in our lives and communities. Well, it's contested by some these days if there's anything of value in the world's religions, any practical advice that might help us navigate our contemporary condition. Well, on Soul Search, we're asking that question in a series called Spiritual Life Hack. Its host, Justine Toe, stopped in to explain the idea. Well, I love a good life hack. I am always, I think this is a product of growing up as a child of the therapeutic age. You always want to maximise your life and try and make it better. 
Uh, and I'm also a Christian and I think that religion is an amazing source of wisdom for life. And so I want to combine the two, basically. I want to see what kinds of wisdom Christianity and other traditions have to offer to our everyday life. Who do you have for us today? We've got Judith Levitan, who's uh, an Orthodox Jew. She's a social justice lawyer who's worked for, who is working for legal aid. And she's also gearing up to celebrate Passover and Seder. And in fact, that's what you are going to share with us today, the story behind the, the celebrations at this time of year. Yeah, that's right. I think we live in this culture that is very sceptical of big stories. You know, we're thinking, I'm thinking primarily of postmodernism, this idea that the big stories, all these big comprehensive stories that apply to everyone and that colonise all of life, we worry that it's a power grab, that it's only out to oppress us. But I'm really interested in the way that she reflects on the story of the Jewish nation and the birth of the Jewish people in this liberation from Egypt, the Passover event, and how that story has been critical to embedding and forming a a Jewish identity that has survived over millennia and through some incredibly difficult challenges. So she'll be talking about how story is critical to forming identity. And these are big stories that are kind of out there in our popular culture. You know, maybe people have seen the Disney movie Prince of Egypt, uh, but they're also kind of bound up with our families around our tables. What does Judith have to say about that? Well, yeah, this is is really getting into the guts of the conversation because we do talk about how family is critical to that idea of sitting around a table, sharing a meal, and then retelling this story that then becomes a central part of your identity. And the children being invited into that, that that story. So it has some really powerful things to say about how families can really ground their children in a tradition and seek to make that tradition alive to them in a world that is full of other competing stories, other competing claims on life. Well, there's a spiritual life hack. Let's hear from Judith today. I would describe myself as a social justice lawyer and I'm an active member of the Orthodox Jewish community. I'd also describe myself as an Orthodox feminist, deeply involved and active and um, affiliated with the Orthodox community, but also very engaged in the secular world and the values that feminism brings and the opportunities that it affords women. Well, we'll be getting into some aspects of that a little bit later on. But this time of year, you're gearing up to celebrate Passover, Pesach. Am I saying that right? Pesach. Pesach. Okay, yes. there we go. Can you give us a sense of what Passover signifies for Jewish people and why it's actually called Passover? Passover. So I would say that Passover is one of the most significant Jewish festivals. If you look at Jewish observance across the spectrum of the Jewish community around the world, Having a a Passover Seder, which is basically like a a Passover meal, would be one of the most popular Jewish rituals. Passover commemorates the birth of the Jewish people. It is a time when we remember the Jewish people enslaved in Egypt and then their subsequent exodus. And it also commemorates the freedom of the Jewish people. And it's about celebrating freedom, freedom of religion, freedom to practice uh, your beliefs. And it really was, I guess, the starting point of the Jewish people becoming a nation and having that as the the sort of start of their identity. Uh, So you've been saying that it's it's an origin story of the Jewish people. There's a sense of oppression in Egypt and not a freedom to, to be who you are. And yet the Passover event is something that enables the Jewish people to take hold of their religious identity. Yes. So the word Passover, well, in English, the word Passover means to pass over the houses. So it was when God passed over the houses and I guess gave them the message that it was time time to leave Egypt um, and to take them out. The word Pesach, though, has a different meaning. And that is really commemorating the, the meal that was eaten 
before leaving Egypt. So it's you may be familiar with the term Paschal sacrifice. So the term Pesach relates to that word Paschal sacrifice. And it, essentially what that was, was a, a lamb barbecue, if you like. So the command in the, in the Bible is for everybody to come together to have a meal before they left Egypt. And that command is sort of then taken in terms of the of what common practice is now is around having a, a family meal together. So that's Seder today then? Yes. So that big family meal is called a Seder. And Seder in Hebrew means order. And that's because there's a particular order to the various rituals that take place. Well, I want you to take me through that. Can you give us a rundown of what Seder looks like in your house? Because on one level, it's a meal, but it's also... Yeah a kind of a dramatic reenactment almost, right, yeah, of that leaving from Egypt. Definitely. And, um, you know, I've gone to Seders where we have actually acted out the story, particularly when we were younger as well. We would dress up and we would have plays uh, around that story of Exodus from Egypt. So the way that the meal starts actually is with a question, and it's a question that the youngest child asks and the question is, well, what are we, why are we doing all of this? Why is what we're doing different from what we do on, on all other nights? And then comes the answer, and the answer is then told as the story of coming out of Egypt. And together with telling that story, there is what's called a, a Pesach plate or a Passover plate, where we have different foods that also, I guess, trigger memory, if you like, or are symbols of that story and of the different elements of that story. Well, can you give us an example of that? Because yep. this is um, the food that is chosen. Yeah. It's meant to actually symbolise various elements of that story. What's yeah. an example? So Passover is celebrated, was originally celebrated in the Northern Hemisphere. So it was celebrated, I guess, in Israel. So a lot of the food that is there is symbolic of spring and of birth, fertility, and new beginnings. So we have an egg, which symbolises new beginnings. We have a green vegetable, which symbolises spring. We also have symbols there that commemorate the suffering and the, the slavery. So, for example, we have a, a mixture of nuts and apples and honey that sort of looks brown, like the bricks that were used for building. So meaning the, the slaves that were oppressed by the Egyptian pharaoh, they were yes. to build for him, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. The other two things that we have that commemorate that slavery are some bitter herbs. And we also have the matzah, the unleavened bread that we eat. And I guess the thing with the matzah is, at the beginning of the Seder also, what we say is we hold up the matzah. And we say, this was the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in Egypt. So it's about remembering the suffering. But that's not where it ends, because remembering suffering, while important, is not an end in and of itself. It's about what you then do with that and where you take it from there. And so the next sentence that we say is, all who are hungry, come let them eat with us. All who are needy, come join us. And so it brings it really into the present day because it's about looking at, well, yes, we suffered and remembering that and then looking to alleviate the suffering that's going on in the world today. And I guess that is the important message that comes through with that matzah. Is this how the, the tradition was passed on to you and then now you're passing that on in your family? Yes, so we have a there's, a, there's a special book, which is called a Haggadah, which comes from the Hebrew word lehagid, which means to tell. And essentially, you're telling the story. And so in this book is written up the story as well as the explanations of the symbols behind those different foods. Great. And how do your kids respond to, to this as well? I yeah. mean, you're holding up the bread of affliction, right? Yeah. Like, and then it's like, actually, okay, I normally eat bread and it's not the bread of affliction. It, how do they react to this? Well, I guess like through all of this, you know, it sounds heavy, but really the Passover Seder is, is a fun night. It's punctuated with songs. It's punctuated with plays and with questions. So, 
And are the questions asked by the young? Is that how it's all framed? Yeah. So there's four questions that are asked. And the Jewish tradition is that the, the children will ask it or the youngest child will ask those questions, and then there's the response. But on top of that, what we have is also an an acknowledgement that children are different and that they may be at different places in their lives and in their connection to Judaism. And so also embedded into the story of the Haggadah is the story of four children and the questions that they ask. And each of the questions that the children asks reflects the different, I guess, potentially stages of of development, but also stages of connection to the Jewish people. And then the response that's provided is tailored accordingly. So the key message that is conveyed or the key theme throughout the night is about telling your children, teaching your children. And so the Seder is really geared to engaging children, whether it's through questions, talking about the fact that there are different children with different ways of understanding the world, and then providing responses. In our house, what we like to do is also have almost like a competition for the the best question. So I remember when we have had Seders in the past, we would encourage our children and children at the Seder to ask questions. It's all about asking questions. The idea is we want that curiosity to be activated and to ask questions and that that is a a path of entry into engagement with the text and with the tradition. It sounds like an incredible night. And yeah, I can see how it's really fun for kids. So you'd say then that the family is this critical place where you can form and embed that religious identity, but not one that's an unquestioning one, but something that is really active and engaged and trying to bring the world and all the concerns that the world has into conversation with what what you're actually uh, there, there to celebrate, which is the founding of the Jewish yeah, people. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, also making it relevant to today. So I was brought up in a house where we would, you know, discuss politics, discuss the way that Judaism would relate to the modern world. And we definitely try to give that over to our children as well. On Soul Search, this is Spiritual Life Hack with Justine Toe speaking to Judith Levitan about the power of stories to shape our faith and identity. So let's talk about how during Passover and the Seder meal, there's a real curiosity sparked and a way of talking about your faith tradition, but also the concerns of the world and a very secular world as we now live in. I suppose what you're trying to do in this is to try and show how even though this faith is millennia old, it's so vibrant and alive and relevant to today. Yeah, I think that for our children, I've got, uh, you know, a teenager and a tween. So... Fun times, hey? (laughs) (laughs) They are very immersed, I guess, you know, in the secular world, in a sense. With the mobile phone, you press a few buttons and you can be truly immersed in, in a very secular culture. What we're hoping to do with the Seder, I guess, and with a number of the the rituals that we have, is to provide an alternate narrative to some of what would be arguably some of the damaging aspects of secular culture. So there's a tendency or a danger for your worth for young people to be defined by how many likes you have on social media and for your identity to be about, you know, the brand of clothes you wear or what you look like or that physical aspect of yourself. And so I think what I try to do as a parent and what we try to do through the Seder is to provide an alternate narrative. So it's a narrative that says that you have an intrinsic worth as a person well, can I interrupt you there, yeah. though? With um, When you're trying to embed this idea of their intrinsic worth, how does that story of God's liberation of the Jewish people mm. from Egypt, does that play into this idea of this is why you have intrinsic mm. worth? The story of Passover and the story of the Exodus from Egypt was about the fact that God, God cared enough to intervene in history to save the Jewish people through a su- supernatural means. And It's about taking that idea of God caring about you and also that your community then, like today, cares about you, that you belong to a community. It's not just you on your own. And there is this community that can anchor you and provide a a meaningful way of living. 
We live in this time that's really sceptical of of big stories like religion. Mm. And people would say that big stories like religion oppress people and and dampen them down. But you're offering a a counter-narrative, really, to that sort of thing. You're saying it actually anchors you and gives you a real solid base from which to live life. Yeah. You know, it's interesting also when you're talking about Passover and we're talking about the different foods. So, one of the foods that we have on that plate is also a, a shank bone or something that represents the shank bone, that meal that was eaten before leaving Egypt. And the biblical commandment to eat that meal was around eating it in one night. And also there was a commandment to bring in your neighbour, if someone is on their own, to bring them in to join you in the meal. And I think that idea of creating community can definitely be an anchoring and a protective factor today. It's interesting, Alan de Boutin, in his book, Religion for Atheists, talked about the positives, I guess, of of gathering together, of building a community for the purposes of worship, where what you will have, the dynamic there is you have almost perfect strangers who may come together for a common purpose. The Passover Seder kind of does that in hyperdrive. It goes one step further than saying, come together in a building to worship. It says that you need to come together in your home. So in a very intimate and personal way, you need to come together with people who may be different from you, have different views from you, but you need to come together as a community around that meal. So I think that those ideas or those aspects of creating a community can be protective factors and can offer also an alternate set of values or an alternate narrative to some of the narratives that are out there in our secular culture, particularly around being an individual and the the ideas around consumerism or materialism. There are sort of other values or alternate values that sit there. And I think what I'm trying to provide to my children is these alternate points of reference that they can dip in and out of and see that there's a different way or a different voice or a different narrative when it gets tough. Well, it seems as though because the Exodus narrative has a real stress on there was oppression and now there is liberation, well, from what you're saying, there are various narratives in a secular culture that can be oppressive, that Mm. can be enslaving. This like, you know, we're enslaved to other people's approval. We're enslaved to how much money's in our bank account. You mentioned also individualism and how that can be an enslaving force. And even Alain de Baton, you know, recognises mm. that there is benefits to religion, especially mm. in that communal element. Mm. So, Judith, Passover and Good Friday fall on the same date this year. There's a connection, right? I mean, like, Christians will talk about how Jesus is the Passover lamb, for example. Yeah. Does that does that come up in the Seder conversation about how Christians have a different narrative or they, they have a different dimension to the narrative that you have as a Jewish person? There are definitely similar themes between Easter and Passover, particularly around rebirth and renewal, and also uh, around that idea of suffering. And I think with Passover, there's the idea of suffering and identifying then suffering in the world today and looking at ways to alleviate that suffering. And I guess linked in also with the theme of Passover, one of the key themes of Passover is around freedom. But when we talk about freedom, it's not, it's not freedom from to do whatever you want to do. It's freedom to, having the freedom to practice, having the freedom to help others. I think that's a key message of Passover. And how does, you, you mentioned before that you're an orthodox feminist. It sounds as though you're bringing your religious story, that's the orthodox part, and you're looking, you're, you're taking, I, I guess, a secular story or what is mm. often seen as a secular story, feminism, but there's not necessarily a conflict here. You're actually managing to reconcile the two on, at that point. Yeah, I think at, at Passover, definitely, uh, my, my social justice leanings come out in full force because of all those, that the ideas around suffering, the ideas around seeing people who are oppressed and then those ideas around freedom definitely align with the values that I have in my secular life around working with disadvantaged people to... And particularly women, it sounds like. Yeah, access to services. In the story of the exodus of of the Jews from Egypt and the story of Passover, there were key women that played a role all through the story 
So Moses' sister Miriam, who looked after him, the daughter of Parol, who also took pity upon the, the Jewish baby that was sitting in a wicker basket in the Nile. So the Egyptian king, the, 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 the daughter the of the king. The Egyptian king's daughter, yeah. yes, is, is seen as a heroine, I guess, in this story. And then you've also got the story of the Jewish women who continued to have children and continued to hope for a better time despite the, the slavery and the oppression. So women do play a, a key role in this in this story. And it sounds like you do as well. Yeah. As the, the other mistress I think of your to, house. Yeah, the, the day today in the in the modern world, women play a very key role in the Passover Seder because while the Seder is also about the ritual and the story, it's also all about the food. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, there's special recipes that are also passed on from generations to generation. You know, the chicken soup with the matzo balls. So before Passover is a very busy time often for women in terms of cleaning and cooking and, and preparing the meal to nourish their families. Well, hopefully the men do the washing up and that's the good trade-off. <laughs> so we've been talking about the role of story and the story of the birth of the Jewish people and all that represents, you know, the story of Judaism. Um, and how that gives you focus and, and grounding for your life. And then how the, the, the Seder meal is an opportunity to bring that into conversation with the alternative stories that are on offer in a secular society. So can I ask you, Judith, what do you believe that story offers you and your children? And what are your hopes for your children as they take that story of Judaism mm. and, uh, and, and go through their life when there's numerous other stories that are on offer? Mm. I think the story that Judaism offers and the narrative, the alternate narrative that's offered is one of kindness, of compassion and of community. And we're trying to inculcate those values into our children so that they can use them as they grow and move through the world. That, you know, like in the story of, of the Exodus, if they see suffering, we talk about in the story that God heard the suffering and the cries of the Jewish people, that they shouldn't be deaf to those cries, that they should take action to make it right in the world. And they get to experience that story of community. They get to be one of those characters and have that a, a very, I'd say, visceral experience of that community. And those values of reaching out to others and having a conversation or starting a conversation as a way of weaving a strong social fabric that will sit there as something that can protect against the elements, that they can rely on that garment, if you like, of community. And I think the other thing it does is that through community, it sets the message that you are not who you are on your own and you can't define yourself purely as an individual. You are inextricably linked to others and you have a place in that community, a place to belong, a place that can empower you and in turn you, we recognise you and the value that you have in turn to, to strengthen the community. Judith Levitan, preparing for the Jewish festival of Pesach and its celebration of the exodus from slavery and showing just how powerful foundation stories are in shaping our beliefs and identities. And Justine Toe will be back next week with another spiritual life hack. She'll tackle the question of suffering with Shane Clifton, a theologian who had to rethink his hopes for the body after a freak accident left him quadriplegic. Well, if you're still thinking about chocolate, after our earlier story on the Quaker roots of the British chocolate industry, remember you can head to the Soul Search webpage or subscribe to the podcast and listen again for another fix. You can also follow ABC Religion and Ethics on Facebook and Twitter or tune in on Good Friday for RN Breakfast, where David Rutledge and I will be bringing you stories and music in a special Good Friday edition of RN Breakfast. Well, thanks to producers Mariam Shahab and Jeff Wood, and to sound engineer Andrei Shabunov, I'm Meredith Lake, and on Soul Search next time, I'll see you in a cemetery. Historian Colin Bale will explain the beliefs and the stories behind the epitaphs that Australian families chose for their loved ones killed in World War I. I hope you can join me then on your home of ideas, RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.